Wow, you didn't see me sprint from the back to here. I was just lost with Jesus back there. And um, just feel like I need to encourage you. Um, if you felt like you saw a picture or a word, um, write that down right now. Take a moment. If it's maybe a specific thing, maybe you know who it's for. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to share that with them later. But if you don't know what it's for or you don't understand it, um, reach out to me sometime today or the rest of this week, and let's, let's process what you saw in your mind or what you heard from the Holy Spirit in that moment, and um, let's learn how to walk in, in some of these giftings. And so uh, I just feel like I needed to share that with you. Um, if you've got your Bible, we're going to use it again today. And uh, I'd encourage you to grab a piece of paper because I want you to, to jot down some notes that I'm going to share with you. And um, I, didn't put, I didn't put a diagram on the screen. Maybe I should have, looking back. Uh, but I'll, de I'll describe it to you as we go along. And uh, we're going to talk today. Uh, this is part eight of Trust the Story. But we're going to talk about building God's house. We're going to talk about building God's house. And so... Um, don't draw your house just yet. I'm going to tell you how to draw it as we, we go along. But I want to take a moment just to recap. And uh, I wrestle with this every week because it, it takes so long to recap. But I feel like uh, I'm not going to go through everything that we've covered over the, the last eight weeks as we've talked about trusting the story. Um, but this is so important that we understand the story God has been telling us from Genesis to Revelation. Far too often especially in the Western culture. We, we dissect the scripture in a way where we pull a verse out here and we pull a verse out there, um, but we don't look at how those verses interact with the entire story that God has been telling from Genesis to Revelation. And the hard part is, it's hard for us to understand the culture the Bible was written in because we're so far removed from it. And so there are people that from time to time will say to me, well, I don't go to other sources, I just need the Bible. Yeah, and they'll even use Paul. They'll be like, Jesus taught Paul so he can teach me. But what you don't understand about Paul is Paul was in the culture. So the words of Jesus made sense to him because of being in the culture. And so it's not wrong for us to go to outside sources. We shouldn't go to outside sources and neglect the word, but we should use those sources to help us understand the word. And that's the book, The Untold Story, that we've been going through. And uh, we've been, I've been putting things on our, our website, uh, downloads for you. There's been pages or outlines I've put together uh, that reiterate some of the things I've taught. Um, links to podcasts and books, maps. And then last week, I put a Knowing God uh, New Believer study on there. And I, I challenged you at the end of last week... Know how to, in one or two minutes, talk about your story. What you were like before you met Christ, what happened when you met Christ, and what's happened in your life since. Two minutes at most. And being able to reiterate in that what happened when you met Christ, putting in there the, the story of the gospel. So in two minutes, if you encounter someone on the street, you should be able to talk about what your life was like before Christ, what happened when you met Christ, and what happened in your life since Christ, and, and tie in the scripture, the story of salvation, in that. And that's not going to happen unless we actually take time to, to write that out, to study it, to practice it, to articulate it. Um, I know as Pentecostals, we like to say, well, don't worry about what you're going to say, uh, because the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words. But the funny thing is, they still committed themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, even though they were told, don't worry about what you're going to say. Okay, so there had to be a level of study, even though the Holy Spirit was going to help bring it out when the time was right. So give yourself to those things. Um, last, this last week, in the Untold Story, we read chapter 8, and we read Acts chapter 11, verse 19, through Acts chapter 13, verse 12. On the calendar I mailed out on Monday, it shows you the reading for the week. Um, there's a reading chart that we've made available on Facebook, and it's a download on our website as well. And so get yourself one of those. Follow along with the reading. Um, it's it's going to help you understand what's taking place as you read through the Scripture. This week, we're not going to read a full chapter in The Untold Story. We're going to read pages 73 to page 83, and then Acts chapter 13, verse 13, through Acts chapter 14, verse 28. And continue to utilize Slack to, to talk about it, to interact with it, what you're reading, maybe questions that you have, um, and things along those lines as well. 
in a week or two, maybe the next week, we're going to actually add in some of the epistles. So now we're going to be reading the book of Galatians during that week, or we're going to be reading the book of James and something from the book of Acts. And we're going to see how these letters were written in church history, what they were written for, who they were written to, and it's going to give us a better understanding of what the scripture mean, what it meant for them, and then how that applies to us. And so I'm excited. I told Pastor John this morning, I feel like the scripture is exploding on the inside of me, and uh, I hope it is for you too. And uh, it's a journey. Don't get overwhelmed in this. If you want to visit with me, if you want to help me process some of this stuff with you uh, during the week, I'm always available to you. And so just give me a call or send me a text and set up a time that we can get together and kind of talk through it. But the thing I want to review today is the, the basis, basic premise of the story. If you remember, I said that the story from Exodus to Revelation could be called the tale of two kingdoms. So there's two kingdoms that are at work. There's the kingdom of the world, or I've called it the kingdom of empire, and then the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word. Yes, it means peace, but it just means uh, peace, wholeness, um, fullness. It's all that God is. It's like just, it's like going up to someone and being like, Jesus, God, everything God is, I just speak it over you. Uh, that's shalom. It's such a powerful word. And so we, we introduced ourselves to King Solomon. Uh, we talked about his empire, and he started so good. And many times we look at Solomon's reign as the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. But in actuality, if you really start to study the scripture, Solomon's reign is actually the beginning of the decline. Even though he started and said, yep, give me wisdom. Don't give me the, all these other things. In practicality, that's not how Solomon lived out his life. He didn't live with the wisdom that God gave him the way that he should have because he violated the scriptures. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, okay, Moses is being told, he's giving, reiterating the law to the people. And he says, basically, when you get a king, okay, here's what you got to remind the king. The king should not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. One of the very first things Solomon does as king is that. It says in the scripture he goes to Egypt and gets for himself horses and chariots. He builds an army. Okay? So is that the kingdom of Shalom or is that the kingdom of empire? Which kingdom is he starting to sow into? Then look what's next. He has told you not to take many wives. What do we know that Solomon is known for? Many wives. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What is Solomon known for? Large amounts of silver and gold. And we see Solomon here in 1 Kings chapter 9 building the temple, building his royal palace, and building, fortifying these three major military bases along the trade route of Israel. Because the reason God put Israel, the nation, in this area, this is a huge trade route. Okay, it brings together the known world across the sea from east to west, uh, from north to south. And so it's not, a, it's not a land that people want because of its great vegetation. It relies heavily upon rain. And so it relies heavily upon the seasons and there can be droughts. But it is a huge trade route. It's a valuable piece of real estate. But God puts his people in the center of the known world where everyone's going to come through to put them on display so they can make him known. But Solomon begins to build himself an empire and doesn't rely on the kingdom of Shalom the way that the Bible talks about. And so when the nation of Israel, if you follow that through, all of the kings and all of the prophets, they go into exile because they've forgotten the story. In fact, they've become the anti-story. We're going to talk about how they become the anti-story a little bit later on. But God always intends to bring them back. So in every prophecy, there's, a, there's a, at least a, a smidgen of hope. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. And then we bring in Ezra. We bring in Nehemiah. They begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple after they come back from exile. They reestablish the book of the law. Remember, Ezra reads it. The people weep, and they're like, no, it's not a day for weeping. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's, it's a time for celebration. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then Ezra writes the Chronicles. So if you've ever noticed that Samuel and Kings tells us a story about the history of the nation of Israel. 
It's written in a perspective as it's happening. But what happens is Chronicles is written later, several hundred years later. And so as they come back out of captivity, Ezra, who's the keeper of the law, the scribe, begins to pen the Chronicles. And if you take your time and you read through Chronicles, you'll begin to see that he focuses a lot on the temple, what's happening in the temple, what's happening according to justice, the way that people are treating others. And he has this this benefit of perspective because of where they've come from, what he's experienced, what God has said, and he writes this. And you come to the end of Chronicles, and then there's this promise, this promise from the, the king of Persia that he, God has called him to build himself a temple in Jerusalem. And then there's 400 years between the time the Chronicles are written and the time the New Testament is written. And we don't know biblically, it's not in our Bibles, what's happening during that 400 years, but we're going to talk about some of it as we go through. And then Jesus comes on and he is interpreting the law. He comes as the fulfillment of the law. He's interpreting it for them, helping them understand it. Then, remember we talked about the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, okay, Jesus died. That's the, the same as the Passover. When the, the Israelites come out of Egypt, the death of the Passover lamb, that's salvation. Jesus died. He becomes our Passover lamb. That's salvation. The Israelites come to Mount Sinai. And they're given the law. This is, a, this is the symbol of the Pentecost, okay? The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks that we've talked about. For the day of Pentecost, that's Mount Moriah. That's the Temple Mount. We talked about the similarities. There was a sound. There, at Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning. Mount Moriah, the temple, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There were fire in both instances. God spoke in both of them. At Mount Sinai, God spoke. The people heard it. At Mount Moriah, the temple on the day of Pentecost, what happened? God spoke by the Holy Spirit through his people, but it's still God speaking. It's him enabling them to speak. And now the law, okay, the Feast of Pentecost, commemorates the giving of the law. That's what's happening for the Jewish feast. Mount Sinai, written on tablets of stone given to the people. Pentecost, written on human hearts, okay? Now by the Spirit, we get to... Keep the law. God has made us right with himself through the death of Jesus, and he writes his law on our hearts. And this explains why the New Testament writers are like, keep in step with the Spirit, because it's written on your heart. You're already made perfect, but God's going to show you how to live now as a kingdom of priests, the same way that he did. He had already made the people perfect because of the blood of the Passover lamb, because of the sacrifices that were going to be made on their behalf. Now, the sacrifices had to be made continually because the, the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't set people free forever. It couldn't cleanse their consciences. But the blood of Jesus was done once for all, making us perfect, no other sacrifice is necessary. We have been made right with God. His law is written on our heart. Now it's our responsibility to live as a kingdom of priests so that other people see him. And we want to remember the story that he's been telling and live it out. And so the church is born and they devote themselves to these four things. Remember we talked about these four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. I believe the apostles are teaching what Jesus taught them. The fulfillment of the law, the Torah, the fulfillment of the prophets, and the fulfillment of the, the writings. Okay, that's what Luke tells us Jesus taught them. He opened their minds to understand it. Now they're passing it on. Don't, don't be confused by this. The Torah for the Hebrew Scripture is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just like it is for us. The prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures start with the book of Joshua. Joshua is a prophet. Judges is a prophet. Samuel is a prophet. Kings is a prophet. So these are prophets along with what we call our prophets. Then in the Hebrew scriptures, we have the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Daniel is actually a writing, not a prophet. Okay, and so there's a, a few differences in how we put our translation together, how the Hebrew Bible is. But when Jesus taught them, the, the law and the prophets and the writings, this is what he's teaching them. And I believe this is what the apostles are doing. Then they committed themselves to the community, to the fellowship, to the body of believers. Then they committed themselves to loving their neighbor or to hospitality, to sharing, to meeting needs, to giving of themselves. And they com com 
devoted themselves to prayer, to communion, connection, to intimacy with God. And that word devoted, okay, devoted means persevere, persist, keep on, okay? Persevere, persist, keep on. That's what the word devoted means. So then the Holy Spirit comes on A.D. 30, okay, that's the outpouring on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 31, somewhere in there between 31 and 33, persecution begins. Now, it's going to get, it's going to ramp up, it's going to grow as the time goes on, but that's about when it starts. In A.D. 33, 34, that's where there, there's a crisis in Jerusalem, they appoint the first deacons, somewhere between 35 and 37, Stephen is put to death. Philip goes to Samaria, takes the word to those non-Jews, those mixed race, and then there's a revival that breaks out there. Somewhere between 37 and 40, Jesus appears to the apostle Saul, Paul then we later call him. Remember we talked about his time in Arabia, his time in Tarsus, that all takes place in this period. Peter begins to travel, and then from our reading this week, around A.D. 44, the apostle James is martyred. Okay, now there's James, the brother of Jesus, and then there's James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of John. So there's another James we're going to hear from a few, a few chapters later here in, in Acts. But this James is martyred around A.D. 44, and then there's a prayer meeting at the beginning of Acts 13 that we read this week that takes place in Antioch, and that is around A.D. 47. So about 17 years has transpired in what we've read. I want you to think about that. Okay, I've pastored this church for about 22 years now. And 17 years has happened since the day of Pentecost and this prayer meeting in Antioch. So this is a, a long time period that I want us to think about. But I want to bring us back now to the temple, to God's house. Okay, we know on the day of Pentecost, we became God's house. We became the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are God's building. Hebrews chapter 3, you, you are God's house. Okay, so the scripture refers to us as being God's building, God's house, God's temple. Those are all interchangeable words that could have been used for the actual temple. So all of these writers are actually telling us we are the place where God resides, his presence. We are his temple. And we know the foundation. So if, you got, if you're ready to draw your picture... I want you to draw a foundation for your house. And the Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of your house, I don't care how you draw it, what it looks like, but you need to write the word Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension is the foundation of you as a temple of God, of us as a temple of God, as a house of God. Nothing else. It's his finished work. Okay, it's not just Jesus and what he said is the foundation. It's Jesus and what he did for us. This is so important for us because when we're about to build on this house, it better be built from the finished work of Jesus, not trying to, to do the finished work of Jesus, but we're living from it. And I know for some of us that's hard to understand, and it's even hard for me to articulate the difference, but if we keep pressing into it, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to make it clearer and clearer to us in the days ahead. So if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day... That's talking about the day of judgment, the day when we as believers will stand before Jesus and we are going to give an account for how we built God's house, how we built our lives, whether we used eternal materials or we used temporary materials. And judgment is going to come and it's going to burn up. I should just read it. It will be revealed with fire to test the quality of our work. Then it goes on. If what has been built survives, so it was eternal you're going to receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder is going to suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Okay, as long as the foundation is there, okay, no, don't, just listen. We're going to build on it. You're going to be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So in other words, by the skin of your teeth. Okay, so I don't know if any of us want to stand before Jesus and be like, well, I got in on the skin of my teeth. I mean, 
We want to build a house that when we're there, we're like, not just because we want to be rewarded. That's a part of it. But because we want him to be famous. We want him to be seen all over our community, all over our world. And we want people to come into the kingdom. We want to build a lasting house for God to dwell in everywhere we go. Whether that's a house individually or a house corporately, that's important. Because he goes on to say, don't you know that you, and that is a plural you, Okay, so yes, we are all individual temples, but you as a corporate body, you yourselves are God's temple and God dwells in you. There is a corporate aspect and many of us in the American church, we don't like this. We're not comfortable with this. Just me and Jesus. You know, I don't need to be involved in a local church. No, I don't need to be involved in an expression of somebody out. I just need me and Jesus. You need to read your Bible. And you need to read it in a way that you know which yous are plural and which yous are singular. Because there's a connection. Okay? God did not just call Abraham. He called Abraham to have many descendants. To bring a family, to bring a household together for Abraham. And that's what we are. And we cannot live in isolation from each other. We are God's temple. Look at this. If anyone destroys God's temple... Or if you do things to break apart God's temple, his people, God will destroy that person. Remember back in the Proverbs, what are the the six things God hates? The seventh and is an abomination, the one who sows discord among brothers. You know, we can disagree on stuff, but we can disagree on stuff in a way that doesn't destroy the house, or we can disagree on stuff in a way that destroys the house. And we need to be careful when we deal with disagreements with one another that we come to one another. We do it for the sake of reconciliation, to remain together, to remain a house so that the rest of the house, if I have a problem with an individual and I go to seven other people instead of going to that individual to make it right, I'm destroying the temple because I'm getting those other individuals to not like that person too. I'm getting them to be on my side. This is a huge thing. And we talk about all these abominations that are happening in our world. And I believe God's setting his house in order. And one of the ways is stop destroying my temple. Stop treating each other in the way that you've been treating each other. We're going to see it even more as we go through today. So we want to be careful. We want to build on the foundation. So I'm going to give you three pillars for your house, okay? So you're going to draw three pillars, okay? Your house has three pillars. And that's really, the, you, the rest of your house is going to be up to you. Uh, to design, but there's three pillars, okay? They're going to come from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to give you the context because I want you to see um, in Micah 6, 6 through 8, Micah's pronouncing judgment, okay? The people of Israel have neglected the story that God has wanted them to tell with their lives. Because remember, it's not just telling with your mouth, it's telling with your life. God wants us to be the story, not tell the story, We are his witnesses. We don't go witness, okay? We are the story, but they've forgotten it. In Micah chapter 6, Micah is basically told them they've forsaken the covenant, they've forsaken God, they've forgotten the story, and uh, here's the response of the people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How should I make it right? Should I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old. Remember, that's what the Torah prescribed. I mean, if you, if you violate the covenant, if you break the law, bring a, bring a sacrifice, bring a calf. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Okay, so hyperbole, could I offer enough sacrifices to make this right? Shall I offer my firstborn? Okay, don't, the symbolism of them coming out of Egypt, the blood of the Passover lamb, what Jesus, I mean, should I even offer, to make myself right with God now, should I offer my firstborn? Again, using hyperbole, but really emphasizing what should you do? And look at what he boils it down to. I love this verse. He basically boils it down to this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, if you want to write on those three pillars, justice, mercy, and humility, we're going to talk about them. Luckily, I still have a half hour, and we're going to talk about each of those individually and help them make sense, I think, to us. 
I believe these are the three pillars that we need to build our lives on. Justice, mercy, and humility to walk humbly with God. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And they, he's, he's talking to them about these keepers of the law. Okay, remember their job was to fulfill the law, to tell the people what the fulfillment of the law was, and they got it wrong because Jesus comes correcting them. He says to them in Matthew 23, talking about the way they were tithing, woe to you, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, don't change your pillar just yet. I think faith and humility are words that could be used interchangeable. And I think you'll see that as we go through the, the day today. But Jesus takes Micah 6, 6 through 8, and he brings it in right here. Remember last week he brought in Hosea when he talked to them, and he says, I want you to go learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. Now he's saying justice, mercy, faith. That's what the law, that's what the Torah boils down to. And what you Pharisees have done, you have strained out a gnat. You have tried to so practice the law down to the tiny, tiny thing, but you've missed the whole point of the law. And the whole point of the law is justice, mercy, and humility. Very important. I want to look at one more um, story that Jesus of Jesus. Okay, in Matthew twenty-one, there's a story that Jesus that happens in the life of Jesus. He doesn't tell it; he lives it. He comes into the temple. You know it. He fashions the whip, and he goes in, and he starts tearing the place apart. And we're going to look at why he does this here. Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts. He drives out all who were buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, the people that were coming to Jerusalem to sacrifice had to buy sacrifices. They couldn't bring them with them. The problem was the money changers. The people that were exchanging money, because these people are coming from everywhere. Remember on the day of Pentecost? Some from hundreds of miles away. Different money they were bringing. The money changers were using such an extreme rate, they were taking advantage of the people coming to worship. They were, they were selling them animals at, at crazy prices. And so they're making a huge profit on the backs of the people coming to sacrifice. Okay? That's what Jesus is ticked off about here, okay? This is a justice issue. This is a mercy issue. They are keeping people from entering into worship for and towards God, okay? So he overturns it, and then he makes this statement. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, if you've studied the scripture or you've looked at your footnotes, you will not find that verse anywhere in the Old Testament. But you will find it in two places. Okay? Jesus has taken something that Isaiah wrote about, something that Jeremiah wrote about, and he put it together and he threw it right here, where this injustice, where this lack of mercy, and where this lack of humility is taking place. So let's look first at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice. Do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, devoted, perseveres in it, okay? Perseveres. He's not talking about does it perfectly, the one who perseveres in it. I don't believe God has called us to perfection in the sense that we, we can never make a mistake, but he's called us to pursuit. He's called us to repent when we do make mistakes. He's called us to continue to pick up and move on, not to wallow, not to get hard on our, oh man, I failed again. Oh, I just keep doing the same thing. Oh, I'm just gonna self-introspect right now and just woe is me, I'm a terrible. No, he calls us to stand up, brush off, admit what we've done and say, Lord, I'm moving on to continue to pursue him, okay? The one who keeps the Sabbath. We're going to come back to Sabbath. And who keeps their hands from doing evil. I love this next part. Let no foreigner who is bound say to the Lord, the Lord will exclude me from his people. So the, when they understood, okay, 
the people understood the Torah, that they needed to stay away from foreigners. I think that's a, an incorrect understanding because the prophets are judging them. They should have not neglected the foreigner for coming near the Lord. Their, their whole purpose was to get foreigners excited about the possibility of coming to the Lord. Now, they had to convert to Judaism to do it, but they were invited in. Okay, we see some of those people later on in the book of Acts. They're getting circumcised. They're, they're following the law. They're coming into Judaism, uh, but not in the way I think that God wanted his people to lead them. Then he says this, let no eunuch. Remember our conversation last week about eunuchs? Let him not say, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Whoa, there's that word again who choose what pleases me, who hold fast, who devote themselves to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and all who keep the, the Sabbath without desecrating it, and hold fast to my covenant, those I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." all people, all tribes, all races, all genders. That word isn't just nations of people. It's every human being on the planet. His house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. Now, Jesus ties that together with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. If you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, there's that word justice. If you do not oppress the foreigner. Why? Because that's not justice. The fatherless or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods? Look at this. It's about how you're treating other people, and it's about your worship of God. Okay? Are you going to come into my house, which bears my name after doing those things, and say you're safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? So Jesus, he pulls these justice, this mercy, this humility, these two passages, and he brings them together in this moment. So let's talk about the pillar of justice. Okay, the pillar of justice, as it is on, as it's defined in the scripture, justice is really about the ending of oppression, setting things right, making things fair. That's what it's, it's about fairness. It's about um, equality, if you will. It's about giving what is due. It's about caring for the poor. It's about how we treat our foreigners. It's about caring for orphans and widows. All of these things. If you read through the prophets, the overwhelming majority of the, the condemnation that prophets give to the people of Israel is they have mistreated people. They have stopped acting justly. Yes, there has been other idolatry, and idolatry is a part of this. But I believe when we stop acting in justice, it leads to idolatry. I believe this is the gateway sin, if you will. Some people think it's the other way around, when we stop worshiping God. But I think we can worship God, and we can offer sacrifices, and we can follow through and mistreat people. We've been doing it in the church for years. We keep coming to Sunday worship services. We get all bent out of shape when our worship services aren't the way we, oh, when are we going to be able to come back into a room together? Oh, when are we going to be able to sing the songs I want to sing? Oh, when are we going to be able to practice the religious ceremonies that I want to practice? But we're not looking at how we're treating one another in the body of Christ and how we're treating the people out there. We're neglecting how we treat foreigners in our country. We're neglecting. We don't care that we're building safe homes for ourselves and bank accounts 
accounts and retirement funds for ourselves on the backs of foreigners, on the backs of people that are being oppressed in our world. We don't care that this shirt is made by by someone in a, a sweat factory on another side of the planet. Oh, don't tell me that. Let me just lift my hands in a worship service and feel good about myself. And I think God has the same words for us that he had for his people. Start acting with justice. Okay, now this isn't going to happen overnight. This isn't, I'm not saying throw out all your wardrobe and make changes, but it's time for us to realize that one of the most important things in God's house is justice. How we treat others. And we see it in the the book of Acts. And I believe it's because the apostles are starting to teach it. Because people are selling possessions and they're giving to whoever has a need. We're seeing it in the, the way that the widows and the, the widows are, are needing deacons to administer justice the right way. We're seeing it in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is giving gifts to the poor. In Acts chapter 11, Agabus comes along and he says there's going to be a famine. The church in Jerusalem needs something. So the believers in Antioch start taking offerings to send to those in need. This is justice. But the second pillar isn't just acting justly, okay? Treating others, ending oppression, doing something to to make that happen. That's absolutely a part of it. But we have to keep mercy involved in this. There is a tension in the scriptures between justice and mercy, okay? Because whenever you, you set the oppressed free, what do you do with the oppressor? I mean, if if I'm going to get justice for someone who's being oppressed, don't I have to do something to the oppressor to make that right? Not necessarily. There is a God who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He has not called us to set judgments, to set times for oppressors. Now, he has given us civil authorities who make laws, and we are to submit to those laws, and we are to allow those justice systems to be at work. But how many times do you and I argue with the justice system? They got it wrong. They, you get to run for office in our great free land. So if you don't like the way justice is being administered, pray or run for office. You can even petition people. But mouthing off about it, putting it all over Facebook, we're not solving the problem. There are ways that God has called us to handle those moments. But God has the ultimate say in when mercy has reached its end and now judgment needs to come. And this is seen nowhere better than all the way back in Genesis 15. God's original covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15, I love it. As a part of that, he says... In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, so the sin of the Amorites, the main sin is the shedding of innocent blood. The Amorites are are famous for child sacrifice. And if you know, if you've seen pictures of this or you understand the child sacrifice, there would be an, an idol made of brass or gold and the arms would be slanted so that um, there would be a fire in the belly that would heat the arms of that, but it would be um, slanted so that a child could be brought, placed on the hands, and then slide down those boiling hot arms into the belly of the God so that the God would be appeased and that rain would fall on the land. Now, the people that are living in this land are dependent upon rain. They are dependent upon Baal and Asherah to provide them rain for crops so they can live. Even to the point that they're willing to sacrifice their children. If you're a parent or a grandparent, how many times would you have to hear the cry of an infant being laid on a boiling hot pair of hands and slide into a fire before you would say, that's enough. But for some reason, this God of mercy and justice says that their sins hasn't reached its full yet. And that's why he's in charge and we're not. Because generally, one cry is enough to set us out for, ju- for, for vengeance, for justice. We're to work for justice to get the oppressed free. But judgment is not in our hands. We remember mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, 
for they will receive mercy. And I promise you this, there's not a human being on the planet that needs mercy more than you and I. Every one of us needs equal mercy from God. And we sometimes forget that. That's why God over and over says, remember where you came from. Remember what I did for you. Blessed are the merciful. When he speaks in Nazareth and says, blessed, or this is the day of the favor of the Lord, and not the, he leaves off the vengeance of our God, this is a day of mercy. When he says to the Pharisees, you know, you practice all these things, but all you're doing is putting rules on people and making it impossible for them to follow. Go find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Ouch. Go back and read Hosea. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute so she would continue to be unfaithful so that he would represent what, what God's people had done to him. And yet God continues to give them mercy. We serve a God of mercy. And yes, there is coming a day. There is coming a judgment. But we are not in charge of that day. Our job is to love mercy. Our job is to want mercy. And here's a, here's a better English translation. Love letting people off the hook. Love letting people off the hook. People that have wronged you, people that have hurt you, have hurt your kids. What? Love mercy? Do you trust God to handle the vengeance or not? If we learn to love mercy, we'll learn. We'll learn to know. And the last, the last pillar is the, the pillar of humility. When Jesus said this to the, the Pharisees, he used the word faith. And I think that there's, um, I think that those words, I think, are interchangeable. If you want to put the word faith on there, humility, faith. But I actually think there's three parts of this. So from your pillar, I want you to draw three lines. Because <clears throat> I think there, there's three parts of humility. I see humility ultimately as our dependence upon God. When it says walk humbly with your God, it means live dependent on God. I mean, you should learn to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Depend on Him for manna every day. Depend on Him for water. Depend on Him for, I mean, everything is about us learning to depend on God. Keep in step with the Spirit. You know, don't trust the, the scripture that I read yesterday is going to keep me today. I need to be in the book every day. I need to pray every day. I need to pray without ceasing. I need to be utterly dependent. It's not my morning devotion time. Every part of my life, I got to learn how to be dependent upon God. Um, and I believe the, the New Testament writers talk about faith in that way. So I think they're interchangeable. But there were some words that we repeated over and over again. And so one of those words is prayer. So one of those lines that comes out, I think, is prayer. One of those words is Sabbath. You could put Sabbath. It's not a day off, and it's, it's, it's rest. Okay, but it's more than just one day a week. Sabbath is about taking a day to reset every day. Sabbath is a lifestyle. The writer of Hebrews really digs into this. You could read it. Um, he talks about, let us make every effort to enter God's rest. Um, we have to learn to live from that place. The third word is obedience. Obedience from the finished work. Okay, it's not obedience to 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 get my salvation, it's obedience because of my salvation. In other words, it's living out who God is on display for the rest of the world. So humility, I believe, our dependence on God is seen in prayer, in Sabbath or rest. And Sabbath could be like, if someone does something that you don't like, do you fly off the handle or do you like step back and say, God, I'm going to leave this in your hands? That determines whether we're at rest or not. Come to me, all that you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Sometimes our reactions show whether we're living in Sabbath or we're living from hurry. You know, when people are in front of us and they're not driving the right speed limit, eh, that's a telltale sign whether we've learned to live in rest or not. Okay, uh, if we have to control everything, you know, I got to control this moment and this moment. Got to control my my kids, my job, my workplace, every circumstance and situation. I'm worried about all these different things. Worry, that's another one. Okay, so Sabbath is a big word, and uh, now you probably got 17 lines coming out of Sabbath. <laughs> but uh, 
that's why I said just write the word Sabbath, and then you'll just have to define it later. Um, but then also that word obedience. Now, I believe those, those three things are great litmus tests that show where my level of dependence is. Not so that I'm ashamed of myself, but so that I press in. God, I realize I'm not dependent upon you. I, I need to be more dependent upon you. Help me slow down. Help me marginalize. Help me create a life of Sabbath, a life of prayer, so that obedience flows out of that naturally. Okay, so I think prayer, Sabbath, and then out of that prayer, Sabbath life will come obedience. Okay, does that make sense? hope so. So Jesus says, walk humbly with God. But here's, here's one statement I need to make. You can pray regularly. You can take a day off and Sabbath like the best of them. And you can obey down to, you know, straining out every gnat and still not be dependent on God. It's not just the outward actions. It's the posture of our heart. Okay, so while these things are a litmus test, just because they show up doesn't guarantee. Okay, because we can do these things, but if they're not coming from within, then they don't matter. Okay, so it's not about a checklist. It's about a relationship. Walk in humility with your God. Okay, prayer, that first aspect, we see it in the book of Acts everywhere. Everywhere. Acts chapter 3. They were going up to the temple at the time of prayer for 17 years. This is a regular thing they're doing. The, the, the Jews, three times a day, have set times of prayer. Set times of prayer, corporate prayer. If you can't be corporate, individual prayer. Like, prayer was regular for them. In Acts chapter 4, they were faced with something that they didn't know how to overcome. And look at what they do. The first thing they do, they reported on it. They reported on what was said. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Let me ask you this. The first time we have a crisis in the church, do we stand up and say, we need to call a prayer meeting? That's generally not what we do. We need a brainstorm session. We need to figure this out. We need to... The prayer meetings don't increase. I know I've attended them. We rely on everything else. We rely on our knowledge. We rely on our planning. We rely on what we think we know. And yet, our hearts can be deceptive. And the one way we set our hearts is prayer, prayer together, because we are the temple together. Corporate prayer is vital to the life of a church. Acts chapter 6, the apostles want to give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Again, I, I told you this before. If I came to you and said, hey, I need to really give my attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, well, and we're going to pay you for that? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they were doing. And so then they bring these deacons in, and they say, you need to care for the needs of the widows. You need to perform justice. And look what they do after. They laid their hands on them and prayed for them. Not because it was a ritual, but because it was an act of utter dependence on God. These men are full of the Spirit. They're full of wisdom. But God, they need you. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius prayed regularly to God. Okay? Peter, he is in the house. The guys are on their way. He doesn't know they're coming. And he's got a few minutes till dinner. What's he do? Netflix? Game on his phone? Little Candy Crush? Little... Uh, I don't want to name any other games because then people might think I'm singling you out. Facebook, scroll through Facebook. You know, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to kill time? He goes up on the roof and prays. I got a few moments. What should I do with my time? Just bow my heart and say, God, I'm going to seek you right now. This is a lifestyle of prayer that flows out of them. Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison, so what happens? The church has an all-night prayer meeting, earnestly praying for his re release. In Acts chapter 13, we read this this week. By the way, if you read in the book this week, Simon, the, known as Niger, we believe is actually Simon the Cyrene. Remember the guy that carried Jesus' cross in Jerusalem? Here he is in Antioch as a prophet in this prayer meeting. 
just love how the story comes together. And there's stuff we miss when we don't read the context and we don't know the whole story. But while they're worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lord does not mean singing. It can mean praying. It can mean offering sacrifices. It can mean singing. So when they come to the temple to offer sacrifices, it's worship. When they come to the temple to pray, it's worship. So they're worshiping. They're praying. They're seeking the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit gives them a vision for what's supposed to happen next in the body of Christ. And then they worship the Lord and they pray and fast more. I mean, when we get a vision, do we pray and fast more? God's given us a vision as Restoration Church to go beyond the walls and to, to have property downtown and to, to work for the peace and prosperity of our city. Are we increasing our, our corporate prayer time as a result of that, or are we decreasing? Well, you know, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. That's not how they responded. Why don't we respond that way? Why isn't our dependence seen like that? In John chapter 15, look at what Jesus says. Abide in me. Learn to depend upon me. Learn to live in me. Don't just spend a quiet time with me. Don't just do a devotion. Learn that every part of your life has to come from me. Because if you do this, you're going to bear fruit. If you do this, you're going to obey me. This is going to be the natural byproduct of just learning to dig in and to abide in me, to devote yourself to this. People tell me all the time, well, prayer is hard. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to pray perfectly. You're supposed to pray persistently. Okay? I've been to corporate prayer meetings before, and especially on Zoom. Well, Pastor Tom, they're just, they're hard. They're kind of awkward, and I don't know what to do. Yes, and we haven't been called to feel emotional when we pray. We haven't been called to, to you know, get a jolt from prayer. We haven't been called to be perfect as we say the exact right words in prayer. We've been called to open up our hearts to show our dependence on God. God, we need you. And our corporate prayer is a sign of our corporate dependence. And sometimes people are like, oh, you just make us feel guilty. I don't want you to feel guilty. But there is a litmus test for whether or not we are dependent upon God. It's our prayer. It's our rest. When we, when we have a, a disagreement, what's our reaction to it as a body? Rest. God's got this. He's got us in his hands. We're a body. We're together. He's going to lead us. Or is there anxiety? Is there fighting? Is there anger? Are we going to one another when we have problems? Or are we going to everybody else? Are we maintaining that sense of unity? I believe in this time of crisis, God is putting his house in order. And he's calling us to justice, to mercy, to humility that's seen in prayer, lives of prayer. I mean, look at this. Pray continually. Pray continually. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be self-controlled and alert so that you can pray. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church. Yep, you can have prayer without being dependent, but you can't be dependent without prayer. It's time for us to say, God, put this house in order and put this house in order. We want to be a house of justice. We want to be a house of mercy. We want to be a house of humility, a house of prayer, a house of Sabbath, a house of rest, a house of obedience. We want our lives to reflect you in every way. I don't have time to go into the two passages where Jesus taught on prayer. Jot them down. You can look at them later. Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches on prayer. It's the story of persistence where you just keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Persistence, persistence. Nowhere in here does Jesus say, you have to learn the exact right words in order to pray properly. So if you're not getting the answer that you need, it's because you haven't gotten the right words. So once you get the right words established and you know what demons to cast out and you know what territorial spirits are over those lands. And I know I'm mocking a little bit and I probably shouldn't be, but it's not about the right words. It's about the persistence that says, God, this is an injustice. This is an injustice in our home. This is an injustice in our land. This is an injustice in our world. And I'm not going to stop knocking on the door because the second one is Luke 18 about a widow that kept going to the judge. And she says, I need justice. And Jesus says these words at the end of that. When he comes to his disciples and he says this, 
Will God not avenge his elect who cry out persistently, who cry out day and night, though he bears long with them? I don't know why he bears long with us. I don't know why some prayers aren't answered right away. But here's what I do know. My God said you keep asking and you keep seeking and you keep knocking. You keep learning to be dependent upon me and I will throw open the windows of heaven and I will heal your land and I will set justice in your land and I will heal the oppressed. And that's what he's called us to do, to be this house of prayer for all nations. But look at the last words of Jesus. Nevertheless, when he comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Justice, mercy, and faith, Jesus said. The pillars of the house. Will he find faith? There's so much that um, I could I could share I could share with you, but um, I think God's setting His house in order. I think God's calling us to live from this place to establish this. Please, from this message, I hope like Peter on the day of Pentecost. I hope you've been cut to the heart today. I hope you're like Pastor Tom. What do we do? Humble yourselves. Repent. In any area of your life where these pillars don't exist, you repent. You say, God, the pillar of justice is not in my life. The pillar of justice is not in my church. We're going to turn toward the pillar of justice. We're going to turn away from injustice, and I'm turning towards justice. Holy Spirit, help me. Mercy. If there's any unforgiveness in your life, any lack of mercy anywhere in your life, repent. Repent and turn toward mercy. If there's a lack of dependence on God, if there's prayerlessness, if there's Sabbathlessness, okay? And again, it's not the day off. It's everything Sabbath is. If those things exist in your life, repent. Admit it to God. Say, God, I'm going to turn from it, and I'm going to turn towards you. And so I want to pray a prayer blessing over you. Um, I'm going to pray these pillars into our life as a church, and I'm just going to believe that uh, God, over the, the next weeks, the next months, the next years is going to establish these pillars in our hearts. And so join me as I pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you. (laughs) I thank you for your work in our lives. God, I thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. (laughs) Oh, God, I thank you that you have never once treated us as our sins deserved. That you, even while we were your enemies, even while we were your enemies, you died for us. You brought us into this covenant relationship with you because we acknowledged our sin, because we put confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we've committed ourselves wholeheartedly to you. God, we are a living sacrifice to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us as individuals and as a body to establish a pillar of justice, to be a house of justice. God, to end oppression. God, we know that we can't end oppression everywhere we see it, but we can do something. Holy Spirit, help us not to continue to add to the oppression, to build empire. God, to go about sacrificing others' lives for our own comfort, for our own safety, for our own protection. God, help us to be people of justice on this earth. Help us as a church to be a house of justice. Help us to do good to others, especially to those of the household of faith. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us as individuals to be houses of mercy, to be merciful as you are merciful, to treat others the way you've treated us. God, help us to act with mercy, to let you handle the vengeance, to let you handle the judgment. God, we're going to give mercy. We're going to ask for mercy on even behalf of our enemies. God, we're going to overcome evil and oppression with good. We're going to trust your story. We're going to trust the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of God, and we're going to release mercy. Holy Spirit, establish us as houses of mercy. 
Holy Spirit, help us to be established as individuals of houses of humility, houses of prayer, houses of dependence upon you, houses of Sabbath, houses of obedience. God, we want to imitate you in everything we do. God, not so that you smile on us, but God, so that others see you. We know you already smile on us. We already have your favor because of what Jesus did. Teach us what it means to live from the finished work. God, we don't want to make excuses for our lives. We don't want to use this great freedom that you've given us to indulge in the flesh. If we continue to indulge in the flesh, all we're going to reap is death. God, we want to sow to the Spirit. We want to give ourselves wholly to you. God, we want to we be houses of obedience. We want to be houses of prayer. We want to be houses of rest, of Sabbath. God, where we trust you. When we lose our job, we're like, God, you're a provider. Show us what step to take. When something happens at work and, and we don't know how to respond, God, we don't want to fly off the handle and panic. And we want to just calm ourselves and look to you and say, God, you're our guide. You gave wisdom to people to build the temple. You gave wisdom to Daniel and Shadak, Meshach and Abednego. You gave, you gave wisdom to them. God, I need your wisdom and believe that you give it liberally. God, we want every area of our lives to be lived from that place of rest, from that place of Sabbath. God, we want every area of our lives to be lived from that moment. And so, Holy Spirit, establish these truths in our hearts so that we can build your house, God, a lasting house, a house that the fire of judgment is not going to burn up, a house that lasts, a house that is like a city set on a hill that brings glory to the Father so that you are made famous in this city and around the world, we pray. God, establish it in our lives. Help us to be obedient to you, I pray. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray your blessing. I pray your shalom today over every house, every member of Restoration Church, everyone watching today. God, your peace, your rest, your wholeness, your love, your grace, your power, your love, everything you are over every member of this body. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for taking time, staying a few extra minutes and letting me pray over you and bless you. Uh, God bless you as you go. I'd love to interact with you this week, either on Slack or on Facebook, or you send me a message, and uh, we can work on this message and walking it out uh, together. God bless.